Good morning, good morning. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to take them. Turn with me as we are in our series to Romans chapter 2. We're going to cover a significant portion of Scripture today, verses 12 through verse 29 will be our text. I want to welcome you this morning to Big Woods Bible Church. It is a delight, as always, to gather together to lift up voices in Praise to the Lord. Thank you, Matt, the rest of the team, for leading us. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. Getting ready for Christmas. Thought I would preach on the judgment of God. Keep it light and celebratory. How will God judge? I, I was raised on a steady diet of the sound of music, Julie Andrews and Christopher Plummer, although it was 1965, long before I was born, we just always had this movie. And, and, and I remember, how do you solve a problem like Maria? How, how, do you, how do you catch a cloud and pin it down? Proverbial response, the inevitable response is you can't do that. My, my dilemma is, how do you take Romans chapter 2 and kind of like turn it into a Christmas theme? Like, how do you do that? You can't, okay? So we're going to stay on track with our series. We'll get to Christmas. It's just building the anticipation. But today we deal with another subject that is of utmost importance. How will God look upon us in that day? What is he watching? Does he just seek to kind of crush us down? Absolutely not. We will see that in this truth today, but we will see careful, careful, careful attention must be given to how we live our life today. We need to bow our heads first and foremost, go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help as we listen and learn. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for every person that has opened up your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would open up our hearts to hear from you. Lord, a part, not just of my own heart, of many I know in our community, um, is aching. We, we think, Lord, of the loss of a little one in our community. And Lord, I admit we struggle. How do we minister? How do we care? How do we love? I just pray for those that are, are mourning and grieving the loss. And I pray, Lord, that we as your children would offer a cup of cold water to the thirsty, comfort those who are afflicted. Lord, in many ways, we, we get a view of the world that we live in. And we get a view, Lord, of how you've placed us here right now to live as your chosen, called, peculiar bride. We ask for help. 
that you would grant us wisdom, grace, and mercy, and love. May we show that to others as you've shown that to us. I pray for help this morning that you would give clarity of word and thought and speech. May you be heard. May you be the focus. May your perfect will be accomplished. We ask this in the amazing and matchless and wonderful name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Okay, our previous time together, we have addressed the subject um, of the, the judging of one another. People were judging one another in the early church, particularly the church that existed in Rome. You see, the Jews had an upbringing, they had a knowledge, they had an education of the law. And so they thought in many ways that they kind of had a one-up. They were a little bit better than the Gentile believers. Gentiles were often referred to as just Cretans or brutes, even, even dogs. Now, we can today, of course, be far more polite but you realize that the church of Jesus Christ today can still measure others. Looking down, measure others according to their appearance, their, their brilliance or lack thereof. We measure people according to the experiences that, that they've had or personal preference. And what we need to hold on to, what is being built here in both Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2, is the fact that, that a case is being built. God is the one who judges. God is the judge. We are not. Now, we know, and we spoke very briefly, that we are to hold one another accountable. We, we are to do that, to speak into one another's lives. We, we, we commit to covenantal agreement and membership. And we are to admonish one another and sharpen one another and spur one another on to good works. But we don't judge by looking down at one another ever under any circumstance. And that's really what was happening in this particular context in the Church of Rome in first century. That, that thinking was actually creeping into their teaching and, and as we read, we'll hear lots of words about Jewish law and circumcision. And it's very easy for us to ask, like, like, what does this have to do with us? Like, how does this apply? So, so, so what? Now what? Let's, let's listen together. And let's commit to learn together going to break up these reading portions into three sections. We're going to begin by reading verse 12 through verse 16. Direct your attention to the word of the Lord. Romans chapter 2, 12 through 16. Here it is. <clears throat> For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts 
accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the, the, secret, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. In response to this question, in answer to this question, how will God judge? Let me give you three responses. Number one is this. God judges with openness, and there are no secrets in God's judgment. How, do, how will God judge? First and foremost, he judges with complete openness. Have you ever been lost before, and you had to stop and ask for directions. And, and now that we have GPS, it doesn't happen. So younger people, you don't understand what your parents and grandparents would go through. In this humiliating experience of, of having to accept the fact that like, we're clueless. We don't know where to go. And it was like this, it was this humiliating. It's like the relinquishing of a sword in battle. To say and to admit that you're actually lost. And so you have to put your blinker on. you got to pull over on the side of the road and, and you used to do this you used to roll your window down like this and you'd have to say like i'm lost can you help me like i just need help here please help me now what's interesting is that the problem is not solved just because you've asked the question the problem's not been solved just because you've admitted the fact that you are lost. As a matter of fact, it's actually, when you hear the instructions that are given, it's still very, very easy to be confused with, what exactly did I just hear, and what exactly am I supposed to do again? I, I, I grew up in, in both the city and in the country. What's interesting is that the way that people give directions, totally different. Okay, we grew up a number of years and spent a lot of time in Philly, and the, the, they're just, they just, like, Usually when you admit the fact I'm lost, they're asking you, like, nobody goes that, what are you doing that for? Nobody goes that way. Just, just, just take, just take what, the Schuylkill Expressway, take 76. Get on West Conchahawk and take it down to Wissahickon and get off Roosevelt Boulevard, it's Route 1. And it's always like you feel so stupid, like it's right next to Geno's. How'd you miss it? You can't miss it. And I'm just like, Sorry. That's kind of what happens when you hear directions from somebody like in, in Philly. Or else you're in the country and, and you roll down the window and you're like, I'm lost, can you help me? And it's totally different. It just is like a long pause. At the crest of that next hill up there. I'm not on a bike. I didn't know I was there was a crest. Crest of that next hill. Southwest is going to be that cedar swamp. Don't go there. You want to head due east. After a little while, the road's going to get a little narrow, and you're going to see where Murray's been taking that old barn. He's been taking that barn down for a long time. Take a look at that old barn. He's been doing a good job on it. It's going to get a little bumpy, but you can't miss it. After Just stay on the road just a little while. You can't miss it. And you kind of hear instruction like this. like you just Well, you're not going to miss it. And you're like, really? I, I think I, I could miss it with what I just heard. And I think that idea is kind of what's happening. It's a, it's a pretty good description as far as what's happening with the subject of salvation in the church of Rome. Somebody took a wrong turn. Somebody's lost here. Somebody got some bad directions. 
Was it, was it pride that led to the promoting of one's own belief as primary means? Was it, was it bad teaching that led to bad theology? What had happened is that within the church, there's what? There's competing that's going on. That could never exist in a church, right? There's comparing that's going on. There's complaining that's going on. And the result is what? There's a sense of overall confusion. Like, how do we get here? And where are we supposed to go? That's really what's happening. People are lost with the next step that they need to take. So what does Paul do? Brilliance. He offers very clear, very concise, very precise direction and instruction. There's a reference here to those who what? There's a reference to those who have the law and those who are under the law. That's what? That's the Jews. And then there's a reference to those who are without the law. Who, who don't have the law. And that's the, the Gentiles. And it's quite clear, although both Jew and Gentile are mentioned in this section, Paul's directing the main focus mainly on the Jewish audience, on the Jewish listeners. Primarily what they were doing wrong, the sins that they were committing and what they were guilty of. I know rather than just you politely saying, hey, I'm not. Can I, can I be excused? Because a part of us is like, this doesn't apply to me, right? Because like, I'm, I'm not that. Rather than, can I be excused? How, how about leaning in for a moment into a teaching opportunity? We can actually learn this morning, all of us, we not only learn what is salvation, but what is necessary for salvation. And we also learn this, who is actually saved? That's very important. That's what we see before us today. Knowing that what? What does scripture teach us in Galatians chapter 3? There is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. What does this teach us? This reveals the fact that when you enter the family of God... I wrote this in parentheses, on your knees is how we enter the family of God. Then what? You take off the mantle of your own existing identity. You no longer lead with the fact, well, I'm white. It doesn't matter what color you are. You take off the mantle of, I'm an American. It doesn't really matter. Sorry, not in the kingdom of God. You, you become a member in the family of God. He's graciously adopted you to be his own in humility. You take off the mantle of your own identity. I, I'm Hispanic. I'm Asian. I'm black. I'm brown. Wonderful. God has created us all uniquely to reflect his image, but we don't lead with that. I'm a Republican. I'm a Democrat. You may very well be any of those things. It's true. You are either what? Born a man or a woman. Dress however you want. You're going to be one or the other. You may be what? Very true. You may be a brother or a sister, a mother, a father, a son, a daughter. You may be a cook. 
You may be a carpenter or you may be a computer geek. Guess what? If you follow Jesus, you lead with that. More than anything else, who are you? I'm a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. First and foremost, we remove the mantle of our own identity. That's what is being taught here. Doesn't matter about your background, your pedigree. Why? Because there's something that's bigger here. Now, the Jews were no doubt a peculiar people. We see that instruction. They were a, a chosen people. They were set apart from others. They had been given a promise. They had been given the written law. They were enjoying the very presence of God. We saw this when we studied what? Through the book of Exodus. It was these people that were chosen, redeemed, and rescued from slavery in Egypt. It was the Jewish people we saw, what? They witnessed the power of God, the provision of God, the protection of God from the Red Sea. Water came from a rock. Manna fell from heaven. It was these people who enjoyed the very presence of God up close at Sinai and in the tabernacle. But when Jesus came, when Jesus came, he changed all of that. Yes, the Jewish people most definitely are, and they forever will be God's chosen people. But the means of salvation, the means of atonement that had once been offered through the blood sacrifices of bulls and goats and lambs, and the showing of one's obedience and careful attention and adherence to the written laws revealed in the Torah, all of that was no longer necessary. All of it. Why? Because the one-time sacrifice of Jesus. John the Baptist said, who what? Behold, there he is, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. 2 Timothy in chapter 1, it's Jesus Christ who abolished death. He abolished. He rendered death ineffective. Why is the church living in such fear today when we know the truth that if you trust Jesus, he has abolished death and brought life and immortality to the light through the gospel? Since Jesus came, what? Just rest on this. It says that he set you free from the law of sin and death in Romans chapter 8. The primary point here that Paul wants to make is very clear. Is that one's justification, that is what being declared righteous before a holy God. One's justification is not based upon the law which the Jews had that they were hearing, but it was impossible for them to do everything perfectly right. They were falling short. One's justification is not dependent upon the conscience that the Gentiles had, because it says what in verse 15? That they had conflicting thoughts in their own hearts. Some thoughts that were accusing others and yet excusing themselves. We can't rely upon the law. We can't rely upon our own conscience. Justification is and never will be, tell me what to do and I'll do it. It's not like that. 
Justification is not. Tell me, just tell me what to believe. And I'll believe it. So I can be declared righteous before God? No, it doesn't work like that. Justification doesn't work like that. Rather, a basic summary of what is being taught here. Paul's big idea. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 17. Righteous are saved by faith. Through faith. In Romans chapter 3, we know that we have proved both Jews and Gentiles, or Jews and Greeks, that they are all under sin. Which means what? There's very little confusion here. There's no, there's no room for mistake. It's very obvious. It's very open. Why is this so important? Like, can't we talk about gifts under the tree? No, this is important because the day will come for every single one of us where God will judge and look at how he's going to judge in verse 16. He will judge according to my gospel. Everything is measured. Your entire life, every moment, every minute, is going to be rendered, what? Against what did I give to you? How did I tell you to live? You're not going to be judged on your report card. Sorry. You're not going to be judged on your Sunday school memory verse Record achievements, gold stars. You're not measured on your SAT scores. You're not measured on how much you tithe. Sorry. You're not measured on any of those things. You're measured on the full measure of the gospel. For by grace you are saved through faith. It is a gift. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ... And you will be saved. Jesus says, I am the way. And the truth in life, no one, no one comes to me, comes to the Father, except through me. It's very clear here, okay? Just get on this Google Expressway, 76. Get off of Wetzihicken. Roosevelt Boulevard, next to Gina's. You can't miss it, people. Like, why is there such confusion here? And this is not throwing a wet blanket on your ideas. This is not throwing a wet blanket on your ideals or your identity. It actually frees us from being under a wet blanket of, of drudgery and moving toward delight. So that we live a complete life of freedom in Christ. Allowing us what? He'd make, he'd make us like little cookie cutters. So that we all can serve and live and give and love a unique life. But yet a life with full theological confidence in certainty rather than like wondering, like, did I do enough? Is God, is God, is God going to hate me if I, if I do this? Like, what about that person? They did something bigger better than I did. And so we measure things like that. No, this allows us to live with certainty rather than always wondering and paralyzing fear of uncertainty. One salvation, your salvation, is not about your personal convictions. 
Your salvation is not based upon your own conscience. It's not based upon laws and rules and past and pedigree and teaching and upbringing. It's about Christ. Your salvation is based upon Christ and Christ alone. Solas Christus. Remember that. Hold tight to that. The truth that we need to be reminded of today is what? There is no like secret path here. Like, let me whisper you, there's a secret way to get there that no one else will know. It's not like that. There's no hidden truth. Just like there's no hidden sins. When there's so many things in our lives that we're like, just hope nobody pulls the rock, what, off that one. I hope nobody finds out about this. There's so much that we just hope, like, I just, I don't want anybody to see it. God sees it all. And he says very specifically, what, the secrets of men. Secrets of women. What, what is that? In, in virtually every single major translation, it, it translates exactly the same way. It's the secrets of men. It means that this, the unfathomable depths of hypocrisy in the self-righteous whom the apostle had to deal with. The secrets, what? There's things that you're doing that you just want to one-up the next guy, the next girl. There, there, there are no secrets. We're children of light. We live in the light. God judges openly. How will God judge? Judges with openness. Secondly, how will God judge? He judges with fairness. Go, go with me to verse 17. Let's pick it up. But if, if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do, do, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. Hold tight to this, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. How will God judge? He judges with fairness, and understand this, there is no favoritism here. Just like there's no secret formula, there's no favoritism when it comes to God's judgments. And you're like, wait a minute, aren't, aren't we his favorites? Like, I was my mama's favorite. No, you weren't. But aren't, aren't we the bride? Aren't we adopted? Aren't we the elect? Aren't we, aren't we numbered and counted with the few? Aren't we set apart? That doesn't allow you to be exempt from God's what? Plan for your life in being adopted as his own children. Because what? Because you are counted with the elect doesn't excuse you from his holiness. So what we see in this section is a very strong, it is a stunning rebuke addressed specifically to those who rely on the law. 
Look at this description. Who know his will. Who approve what is excellent. Who has been instructed from the law. What is Paul doing here? He is addressing not only those people of Jewish heritage, but he's addressing those people who are teaching Sunday school. He's, he's addressing the people who are serving at the soup kitchen. He's addressing the people who are ringing the little bell next to the little kettle on a freezing cold day. He's addressing those people. Listen to the description. If, if you are sure that you're a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor, the foolish teacher of children, at first you're like, but isn't that who we want to be? Like, isn't that what we should be doing? Paul says, no, because you're bragging about it. You're boasting in the law. And as you do this, you dishonor God by breaking it. He says, if you teach others, what? Hold the mirror up. Don't you teach yourself? Don't, don't you understand here that there's a point, rather than looking outward, we begin by looking at our own hearts. It was no secret that people were preaching, you better not steal, and they were stealing. People were preaching, oh, you better be faithful. Don't commit adultery. And they were committing adultery. They were doing the exact things that they were saying, don't you ever, don't you ever catch me finding you doing that. Matthew Henry says it like this. This is tragic. This is tragic. Matthew Henry writes, It's no new thing for the worst practices to be shrouded under the best names. Just think about that for a moment. It's, it's not new here. This, this whole thing has been going. It's not a new thing for the worst practices to be shrouded under the best names. How many times have we held someone up? Oh, but they are. Wait a minute. What, what, what is the charge that is given here? The name of God is blasphemed because of you. I, I, I can think of no greater terror than me being responsible for blaspheming the name of God. To blaspheme means this. It means the act or offense of speaking in contempt of. Speaking ill about God. It, it refers to profane talk. Lacking reverence. You, you, listen, you listen anywhere throughout the, the annals of history and read the pages of scripture. To blaspheme God is no little thing. Don't breeze through this verse. Don't breeze through Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Pause. Hear its truth. And search the depths of your own heart. As I search the depths of my own heart. Revelation chapter 2 um, they're speaking about the churches. Remember the seven churches. It's the church in Smyrna. Listen to this. Where the Holy Spirit says, I, I, I know your works. Your tribulation and your poverty. 
but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews are not, but you are a synagogue of Satan. Whoa, tell us, like, tell us, tell us how you really feel. You, you realize what the act, you, 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 you claim this? And you're actually a synagogue of Satan. When Jesus ministered here on this earth, he didn't mince words, okay? Particularly for these people. Pharisees and Sadducees who were playing the religious card. Like many people who sit in pews and chairs in churches today. Listen to what Jesus said. He called them blind guides. You're misleading people. He calls them fools. He calls them whitewashed sepulchers. You look pretty and painted up nice on the outside, but you stink like rotting flesh on the inside. That's what he's talking. He refers in Matthew chapter 3 to them being a brood of vipers. You're a bunch of snakes. That's what he's saying. Listen specifically to how Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 3. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, they're coming to his baptism, and Jesus says, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, listen to this, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I love that verse. They're standing in rocky ground in their stones. He says, who do you think you are? Do you realize what my heavenly father can do with these rocks right here? Do you realize the hope that is in that verse right there? Some of you feel like I don't, like I just don't know the Bible really well. I, like I just don't fully understand it. I wasn't raised in church. Some of you say I, I actually was, I was hurt by other people. I was hurt by people in the church. So some of you. What can honestly say, I, I, I was lied to. And I was left alone. Some of you say, I, I, don't have, like, I don't have a lot of gifts. I don't have a lot of talents. I don't have a lot to offer. Hey, you know what? Neither do I. I, I, don't, I don't have a whole lot. I'm listening to Eddie Van Halen jamming on the back guitar this morning. I'm like, man, if I could do, like, I can't do diddly squat. And I could pause on the fact that I can't do this, like this person. And a lot of us do that. If I could only stand up and I could, if I could do what that person could do. But if God can raise up stones... <laughs> To be his children of promise. How much more can you, who have been what? Created in the very image of God. How, how much more can you, who have been fearfully and wonderfully knit together, how much more can you, who have been loved so much by God that he decided to offer his own son for your salvation, for your atonement, for your justification. 
How much more can you do for his glory? There is such great news to this picture here. Why? Because we're not ever going to be beat by a stone. We're not going to let a stone beat us. We may not be the brilliant one that others, but we will not be beat by a rock. And there's hope in that. This morning, be reminded what? Knowledge is not going to get you a one-up. Knowledge of the law cannot save you. You cannot fake this. You cannot feign godliness and holiness. Don't ever for a moment boast in your own righteousness. Instead, what do exactly as Paul says in Galatians chapter 6. God forbid that I should boast in anything except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to brag about something? Brag about that. Ignatius of Antioch says, Christianity is not a matter of persuading people of particular ideas, but of inviting them to share in the greatness of Christ. Yeah, I'm not, I, I don't have the gift of evangelism, so I can't tell others. Just invite them. Say, come with me. I've experienced the greatness, the greatest. Just come with me. Ignatius continues, so pray that I may never fall into a trap of impressing people with clever speech, but instead may I learn to speak with humility, desiring to impress, desiring only to impress people with Christ himself. That, that's the only thing. Like, take your special little gifts and abilities and pocket them. Lock them in the trunk. And draw people to the cross of Jesus. Thirdly and finally, how will God judge? He judges with great graciousness. Graciousness. There's no desire here to wreck or to ruin anyone. Let's, let's, let's look at the last portion here. See if you pick up on a word that maybe surfaces more than others. For a circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have kept the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, but the spirit, not by the letter. By the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Kind of tough to avoid here. Ten times. Ten times in these five verses, the word circumcision or uncircumcision is mentioned. Parents, I'm going to allow you to explain that to your little ones, okay? I'm just going to leave it right there. Just put it right out. Parents, your job is to explain that to the little ones. But we know... We know, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, circumcision was an outward sign of the covenant. It was to be in part of the law. 
sidestep here just for a moment. Just take a little observation of God's grace in, in, in the midst of God's law. Every little boy, eight days, let me tell you this. Uh, it, it's, it's quite a bit better to be an eight-day-old baby than a 99-year-old man like Abraham. Comes to Abraham, I'm like, hey, man, take him on for the team right there. But again, what was happening here? The Jews were banking on this. The Jews were banking on the fact that they would be spared at the last judgment by virtue of their circumcision. And as we saw previously, what just as knowledge of the law or of the letter it's referred to here cannot save, works of the law, works of the letter cannot save. So what, is, what does the Apostle Paul do here? He brilliantly uses an old picture to describe the new covenant. He actually goes back to Jeremiah chapter 4. And he uses this phrase of circumcision is actually a matter of the heart. Now I don't want to get too deep into it here. Anatomically speaking. Physiologically speaking. But I'll give you a little hint. I'll give you a little hint. You cannot circumcise a heart. Can't happen. I'll leave it right there. Therefore, what, what happens here? It is the spirit of the Lord. He is the one who transforms. It is the spirit of the Lord who is far more concerned about your soul than he is about your body. How many prayer requests? Oh my goodness. You wouldn't believe what my toe looks like right now. It's pretty bad. Let's all get on our knees and pray for my toe. Yes, I understand that. And we do need to pray for parts that ache and hurt. But let me remind you, even with the pandemic that is going on around us, God is far more concerned about your soul than he is your body. He's far more concerned about what's happening inside than he is the outside. Again, it's, it's his work. It's his work. It's not our work. I love how the prophet Ezekiel records what? In Ezekiel chapter 36, God is, God, God is saying, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit. I will put that within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. What, what does that do? It like totally, totally, totally levels the playing field. The Jews didn't have a secret formula here. The Jews, what? Were not favored in some way with an advantage. An uncircumcised Gentile could be numbered among the promise, the chosen, adopted into the family, be part of the kingdom of God. Why? All because of Christ. All because of Christ. All because of Christ. We see that. Cornelius. In the book of Acts, chapter 10. He's a Roman thug. A centurion. A muscled Roman soldier. If you remember, they're the ones who were driving nails into Jesus' hands. 
And yet Cornelius is described as what? Being a devout man and one who feared God with all of his house. Cornelius probably shepherded his own family better than some dads are shepherding their own family today. And he was an uncircumcised heathen before he met Christ. The result, what is the result here? The result is good news. It's praise. It's praise. We are not saved by our works. God has saved us through the gift of faith, which means what? There's no need, there's no means for you to brag on your outward knowledge, on your outward works. The only thing that we are to brag about, we are to brag about and boast in our weaknesses. I read one pastor this week, he says this, and I quote, weaknesses highlight God's grace. I wish I could claim that, I just can't. Forget the guy's name, but it wasn't me. Weaknesses highlight God's grace. Why is this so important? Because we will receive praise, not from man. We're not concerned about that but we will receive praise from God. God doesn't seek to wreck your life. God doesn't seek to ruin your life. In any way, any shape, any form. But instead, what? God desires to offer grace and love and atonement and payment for sin. God desires to offer salvation and justification and eternal life. One commentary said that this, this, you know, like, what do we do with a problem? Like, Maria! What do we do with the Romans chapter 2, like three weeks from Christmas? This text is ripe with application. I remind you very quickly, in closing, to ask yourself this question. Does pride exist in your life? That's what it's really addressing here. Allow the Holy Spirit to, to kind of allow that to just seep in. So much of what motivates us is by our own pride. Does pride exist? How about this? Does hypocrisy exist? You want, you want to look this way? But live like that? The name of God is blasphemed because of you. That's a warning which means it doesn't have to be like that. As a matter of fact, starting this very minute, this very moment, you can say, Lord, forgive me of my pride. Forgive me of my hypocrisy. God, forgive me for blaspheming the name of you. And help me to live in full and complete and utter submission and brokenness. May I daily come into your presence on my knees, removing the mantle of my own special identity and giftedness. God will judge with graciousness regardless of every single step of your life up to this moment. Do not be afraid of God's justice, but welcome his grace. Father, we love you. Thank you for this word that I know is heavy and hard. Thank you for the way that you just squeezed my own heart from this text this week. I pray, Lord, that we would be a church 
that is known for exalting the name of Jesus, glorifying you more than ourselves. Even as we close in song, may your spirit continue to work. We ask this in Jesus' name.